Hey everyone, it's Erica. I've prepared something special for you. I wanna invite you to my one-of-a-kind five-day challenge where I'll be sharing how you, along with thousands of others, can start investing with confidence. You're probably thinking, Erica, I've never invested into the stock market, or I don't have a ton of money lying around. But that's exactly why I created this challenge for you. It doesn't matter if you have lots of money to start with or next to nothing. You'll discover easy and fun ways to start generating passive income, multiply your money, and create a future of financial independence without the guesswork, complexity, or risk when it comes to investing. The challenge is right around the corner, so secure your spot by clicking the link in the show notes. And by the way, this challenge is totally free. So click the link in the show notes or go to erica.com slash invest. That's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest. Again, that's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest to secure your spot. Now back to the episode. I think that the real challenge in business, perhaps particularly as a woman, I think about that from time to time, is knowing just how much risk to take. The CEO of Virgin Money and the government's women in finance champion, Jane Angardia. Equality and diversity in business isn't just socially right, it's economically right. What are things, if you could go back and change, that you would take more risk on? The only things I regret are what I haven't done. Years and years ago, there was a little tiny cottage for sale and it was 25000 pounds and my husband and I talked ourselves out of it because we could only just about afford it. When did your desire to go into banking come? Oh well my career's all been a complete accident I'm afraid. I'm Erica Kohlberg and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. With my job I travel a lot. Multiple flights, different time zones, and a packed schedule mean that it's easy to lose all sense of routine and miss out on important things like exercise. That's why I use and love Copilot. It helps me stay on track with my fitness goals regardless of where I am or what I'm doing. Copilot isn't just your usual fitness app. You get assigned an expert coach who will customize your workouts based on your needs. Mine has been amazing. We got on a call when I first started and she immediately understood what I needed. She's adjusted my sessions when I've been sick or super busy just to make sure they still work for me. Having Copilot by my side removes all the unnecessary stress of working out. Can I get to the gym? What should I do when I'm there? I just put on my workout clothes, open the app, and get going. At the end of a long, long day, it's so great to have a session ready to go. Copilot is fitness made easy. If you want to kickstart your health, then visit erica.com slash copilot to get a 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. Again, that's erica.com slash copilot, Erica is with a K, to kickstart your health plan with a free trial. Link will also be in the show notes. So can you tell me about your relationship growing up with money? Oh, goodness me, that feels like a long time ago, growing up with money. I mean, money was always quite scarce in our household. You know, my mum in particular was the person that looked after the cash, I remember. Uh, and I think that's still the case today, really, isn't it? That often, you know, however we want to make sure that gender is balanced, often it can be the the mother or the, the woman that looks after cash. And we can see that in some of the societies in India, for example, where banks are made for women only. And so I think that, you know, my mum certainly drilled into me the need to sort of look after the pennies and the pounds and look after themselves. 
And I remember literally um, having pocket money in pennies and saving up to go on holiday once. And I saved up this um, amount of pennies in a an old whiskey bottle that had uh, dimples on it, which I really liked. And I remember being very excited that uh, over my sort of 12 months before we went on holiday, I'd saved up eight pounds. So I think um, I think saving money and, you know, being aware of what you're spending it on and what's good value for money was something that my parents certainly drilled into me. Uh, and I think that that's important for everyone, really. Were they modeling that behavior or were they actively saying, you know, make sure you save your money? Oh, gosh. I think I don't remember my dad talking about money at all, really. But my mum very much was, um, you know, very focused on how much things cost. So I don't think that she was aware of modeling it. It was just the way she lived, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I used to feel guilty if on something like this, I'd say I come from what in the UK we call a working class family, because I think, oh, my parents worked really hard to sort of feel that they were, had lifted themselves into the middle classes or whatever. But I've uh, been tracing my ancestry recently and really enjoyed doing that. And I really do come from a properly, and I'm proud to say I come from a properly working class family for many, many, many generations. So, you know, all of my sort of forefathers were coal miners or blacksmiths or chain makers or I was reading recently nail makers and a lot of the women as well as the men were nail makers back in the 1870s. Nails that you like hammer Exactly and so oh. of course before they were machine made they were made by hand and they could be done like piecework so women would be given you know I don't know exactly how it worked but it would be that apparently all of the little houses of the nail makers would have a like a blacksmith's forge next door or one to share and they'd have the right amount of you know metal and they would make nails out of them and it was hard work long work they'd work 17 hour days sort of thing they get paid by the nail very poorly and so you know as I say properly a working class family that hadn't got any money lots of children and not much money and so I think that came through both my parents really which is you know whatever you've got you must look after and that means saving it. What did your parents do? My parents both died back in uh, 2016 within a few weeks of each other, but they were well into their 80s. My dad, interestingly, left school at 14 and he worked in um, a town in the Midlands of the UK. All of his family worked there in the steelworks that was called Round Oak Steelworks. And when he was 14, he used to be the boy that delivered the beer to the men that were working in the furnace. Um, and that's how he started. And then he developed to become an electrical engineer and, and ran a business around electrics, which was really good and really interesting. And my mum, when she left school, she was one of the, interestingly from my career really, she was one of the first women to uh, go into banking. And she was one of the cashiers in uh, Barclays Bank in Birmingham New Street, for people that know that. But then, of course, uh, it, fascinatingly, at the time, if you worked in a bank, if women worked into in lots of industries, I guess, but certainly in the bank, if you get pregnant, you had to leave. And so when I was born, she left. And, uh, you know, she did some secretarial work along the way or some work at home. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just incredible to look back and think, you know, my mother had to leave work because she was pregnant with me. doesn't mm -hmm. seem very long ago, really. No. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> and did you look at her and think, oh, I want to go into banking? No, I, don't, I, I don't think I even knew she was um, a bank cashier until I got into banking. And she <laughs> said, well, that's funny, because the job that I had before I had you was in, in banking, if you see what I mean. When did your desire to go into banking come Oh, well, my career has all been a complete accident, I'm afraid. So I went to university. I think I was, well, I 
one of the first, I was the first person in my family to go to university and studied history, which I always loved. And now that I've got a little bit more time on my hands, I'm sort of realising that I'm reading um, historical stuff again, loving it. And while I was at university in London, I met my uh, future husband, as it were, my <laughs> my existing husband, current husband, <laughs> and uh, 40 years later. And he's Indian. And all those years ago, it wasn't the gut done thing, really, for the oldest Indian boy in a family to marry outside his sort of caste really and so we rather romantically ran away together and uh, that meant that we, after university and so we had to find work to do and I don't think we ever thought about it as a career choice it was just that we needed a job <laughs> if you see what I mean and um, we both went on to study to be chartered accountants which neither of us enjoyed very much <laughs> come to think of it but it was a brilliant qualification you know and um, we lived in Norwich which is uh, you know a, a, it used to be the second biggest city in the UK historically since I'm talking about history uh, but it's now a relatively small city in uh, what's called East Anglia and Whilst I was in Norwich, I worked for what's now EY. Those years ago, it was called Ernst & Winnie. And one of their big audit clients was an insurance company called Norwich Union. And after I qualified, I joined Norwich Union. One of the things in that insurance company that I realised was that I just liked talking to people. And so I was a bit bored by the work, but I really enjoyed chatting to people, if you see what I mean. And so when... Norwich Union found itself with a problem. It had a very big um, compliance and regulation problem. This is way back in 1994. I think partly because I knew so many people across the organisation, I was the person that was asked to sort this out, much to my surprise. And when I resolved this big problem, the uh, CEO said to me, as a thank you, we will support you in doing whatever you want to do next with your career. And I was not quite 30 at the time. And although that sounds a really nice thing, it's actually quite hard. You know, if somebody says to you, you can do whatever you want to do, tell me what you want to do, you think, gosh, where, where on earth do I start? And I was in Norwich on a train coming down to London uh, one day, and I found that somebody had left a copy of Hello magazine on the train, and Richard Branson was on the front cover of it. And I went to see a friend in London and I said to him, oh gosh, you know, I don't know if I'm about corporate life. I've been reading about Richard Branson. I wish I worked for him. And um, this guy said to me, well, how funny. My best friend's just gone to work for him. Why don't I introduce you? And as a consequence, I um, met the friend and we agreed that we could set up a financial services company together under the Virgin brand. We met Richard Branson and were able to launch Virgin Financial Services. Because I was an insurance company, we started off offering asset management and insurance products. And then all of the banks got in touch with us and said, well, you know, the brand seems to be working in financial services. Have you thought about going into banking? And we went into banking with uh, Royal Bank of Scotland. And subsequently, RBS bought the, the Virgin business that I was leading. So I got into banking, if you like, that way and understood banking that way. I was running part of the retail bank, running their mortgage business. And then I, for all sorts of reasons, Richard Branson, when he, uh, when I'd gone to RBS, had said to me, if ever you want to come back to Virgin, you don't like corporate life, give me a ring and you can come back. And I remember ringing him one Thursday and saying, you know, I'm keen to come back and so are a lot of my friends. And he said, great, we're, we're looking for someone now, why don't you come back? And so back in 2007, I went back to Virgin and during the financial crisis, we bought a bank here in the UK and we were then able to list the bank and uh, subsequently we've sold it to the Clydesdale. 
So it's become Virgin Money has become a relatively big bank on the UK high street. So it's been fascinating, but all pretty accidental. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What was the most difficult part of your leadership role there? I think that the real challenge in business, perhaps particularly as a woman, I think about that from time to time, is knowing just how much risk to take. And certainly after I'd gone back to Virgin and we were, you know, thinking about how we might help with the financial crisis, there was a a bank called Northern Rock, which had failed as as a result of the financial crisis. And one weekend, I just saw the problems in the newspapers and on telly with uh, people were queuing outside this bank in order to get their money out. And it was a big sort of huge UK story. And I thought to myself, do you know what? I think we can probably help with that. You know, I, I understand banking from working with RBS. Richard Branson's got such high profile. Um, the Virgin brand is a well-regarded brand in the UK. Could we put all of that together and solve the problem and help this organisation? And I remember I sent an email on a Sunday night to about 50 people and saying this, you know, why don't we get involved and try and sort out the Northern Rock problem? And I promise you about 49 people came back and said, don't be ridiculous. (laughs) And one person came back and said, brilliant idea, let's do it. And the one person was Richard Branson. And so I think you find that you know, you need your supporters. And there sometimes if you take a big step and you're sort of entering an environment that's quite risky, I don't think you can do it on your own. I do think you need someone to support you. But I think that if you've got an idea and if you think that, you know, you can really make a difference, then you should really go for it, whatever people say. So I think that was probably the most challenging, the, the thought all the way through my career. And that's just a good example of it around how do we go to the next step and how much risk did we take to get there? Mm. Uh, I think that's that's something to think about. I've heard you say in the past that you feel like throughout your career, you wish you would have taken more risks. What are things, if you could go back and change, that you would take more risk on? Well, it's interesting. So after I sold Virgin Money to the Clydesdale Bank, we set up a a business called Snoop, uh, which we've just sold to another bank called Vanquist after uh, about uh, four years, three and a half, four years of, of development. What we did with Snoop, which we did really well, was to really offer people insight into their finances and ways in which to manage their money. One of the things that I would like to have done with Snoop would to have been to create a sort of money network with it, a bit like a social network. The great thing about Snoop was that it enables people to understand what they're spending their money on and to see where they could spend it better or differently and save money by, you know, buying somewhere, going somewhere cheaper or where there's a discount or an offer on or whatever. And I remember thinking at the very beginning, wouldn't it be brilliant if we could set up a network so that it's not just people at Snoop Head Office, if you like, that are identifying these bargains and these ways of spending money. But if we could identify them for each other. If you live in Liverpool, you'd know that you can go to a certain shop and, you know, get a real benefit because, and that would be great for Snoop people that are in Liverpool, etc. So could we set up a social network to do that? And I think the disappointment in a sense was that we felt that we had to stick to our knitting. We really understood how banking worked and, you know, it worked in many ways. It worked out well that we could identify how people could save money and manage their banking transactions and give them real access to um, things that they'd not seen before on their own for their own financial data. But I probably should have taken that risk and said, yeah, I know we don't know how to set up a social network, but people have done it. So let's Let's try it ourselves, if you see what I mean. So I think just 
balancing out what's the right risk to take when. I think if I look back on my whole life, not just my career, the only things I regret are what I haven't done. I remember years and years ago, my parents lived in Yorkshire and there was a little tiny cottage for sale and it was £25,000 and we could just about have afforded it as a sort of, you know, as an investment. And my husband and I talked ourselves out of it because we could only just about afford it. And of course, it's probably worth 10 times that now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always those things that you think, oh, I wish I'd, you know, I had that idea and I didn't do it. So I, I would definitely encourage people, I think, if you've got an idea, not to let other people dismiss it or dismiss it yourself just because you think that it's a bit too risky. Yeah. Well, now you have your idea for your next company. You can do the social network. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I should do that. <laughs> With Snoop, what were some of the biggest insights that you found about how people were spending money and how they could save more? Interesting question, because actually the biggest insight was people do understand how to save. Sometimes we can't be bothered. I don't know if lazy is the right word, but you know, people find money a bit difficult or a bit dull or a bit tedious. And so if you've got your car insurance sorted out or your um, I don't know, your cell phone contract or whatever. It's easier to stay on it than to switch it probably. But people still want to know, could I get a better deal and, and change it? And we can certainly do that. But the thing that really struck us was that every Sunday afternoon, we um, you know, amalgamate everybody's data on a look forward basis and say for the next week, based on what we can see about your spending patterns, either you're going to have, you know, some excess money, in which case you could save it, or you are going to run out of money by Thursday, so you should watch what you're spending sort of thing. And that was by far the most liked thing that we ever did. So people would say, you know, I find budgeting really difficult. I've got two or three different bank accounts. You've accumulated them all, aggregated them all together. It's great to be able to see my money all in one place. I never knew I was going to run out of money on Thursday or whatever. And so I think the real insight was that these, well, you know, as, as individuals, of course, we can do our own budgeting. But if you can find a budgeting tool that really help you to understand your financial position, obviously you can manage it better. And, and what people say to us is that that means actually that not only are they financially better off, but it's good for their mental health. You know, you feel you worry about money if you don't really understand it or you're not really on top of it. And if you know you're on top of it, that's you know, one of those worries ticked off. So I think that's been the biggest insight, really. It's true what you say, where people will see ideas of how they can save money, but oftentimes status quo is just easier to maintain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that's the, the thing. Um, and banks find that very often, you know. So there are far fewer banks in the UK than there are in the US. And broadly, once you've got your current account, your checking account, you don't move it because it's just too much hassle. And I think that's a shame because that means that often banks don't give the best service that they can or they might charge you more than you'd want to be charged, but you just go, I'll just tolerate it because it's just so difficult to change my bank account. And so that's another thing, I think, that, um, again, with Snoop, one of the things that we did was to sort of shine a light on the current accounts that, or checking accounts that people found were good and help people to switch them, which I think, you know, again, was something that people really appreciated. You might not know this, but I'm actually part French. I've always thought one day I'll learn French, but life gets in the way and I never seem to have time. If you're in the same position, Rosetta Stone might be perfect for you. It helps you to reach your language goals efficiently without being too demanding. Lessons are as short as 10 minutes, so you can learn between meetings, classes, and commutes. 
Rosetta Stone has so many cool features. Their voice recognition feature is really neat. It uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers and then give you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words so that you can really hone your pronunciations. And because I'm a Rosetta Stone partner, you can get over 50% off a lifetime subscription. Usually $3.99, you pay just $1.49. Their lifetime subscription means that you never have to pay renewal fees. You can learn multiple languages at your own pace. Start, stop, and review at your convenience. Visit erica.com slash Rosetta Stone. Download the app and immerse yourself in a new language. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. Again, that's erica.com slash Rosetta Stone, Erica with a K. So clearly what you were doing with Snoop resonated with a lot of people. A lot of people want to save money. A lot of people want to have all of their accounts and be able to see it in one place. How were you able to scale so quickly? All through social media, actually, which we hadn't expected. So Snoop was set up by a team of people that came from Virgin Money. And so we'd sort of been entrepreneurial Previously, we'd set up Virgin Money, but it'd become quite a big business through acquisition as well as growth. And we used quite traditional advertising and marketing for Virgin Money. And I think we expected that that would be the same for Snoop. But the fact was that we didn't have the same marketing budget. And so working out how to, to make Snoop famous on social media was something that was really, really powerful. And certainly by the time we sold the business, all of our customers were coming to us through either word of mouth or through social media. And that was often done, funny enough, through TikTok influencers. Wow. And so we'd have a number of people, both um, some people that were, you know, famous but mainly people that were normal people like all of us, if you see what I mean, just talking about their relationship with money and how Snoop had helped them or how Snoop could help others. And I think it's that sort of reinforcement that people like me find this helpful that has been really great in terms of growth. So, yeah, that has been something that's been successful for Snoop. Did you expect when you started in 2019 that it would become something that would grow so big and you'd be able to sell it in four years? No, because and the reason for that was, of course, um, so we sold Virgin Money at the end of 2018, put the team together to build Snoop in 2019, and all the build was happening in 19. And one of the things that we did, which, again, I'd not done before, was rather than sort of wait to create Snoop as, that was as good as we wanted it to be, we asked people, did they want to be part of a testing regime if you like and help us to create it and we had five much of my astonishment five thousand people said love to be part of creating snoop and at that point pre-covid we had a small office on waterloo station so that you know people would actually come in and talk to us they'd be commuting into london for their job and they'd drop off and say i've used snoop and i think this would be good or whatever anyway 2020 then happened and of course COVID then happened and so our thought was goodness me what on earth are we going to do now because we were planning to launch in I think it was July 2020 and so many of these people I can't remember what percentage but a high percentage of these people said well hang on a second you might not think that Snoop's ready to launch yet but actually for COVID this is perfect you know people are worrying about their you know their future they're worrying about their money they're worrying about where to get 
all sorts of necessary things from. Um, this is the ideal time to launch it. Don't wait for it to be perfect. And so we launched in, I think it was April 2020. And I have to admit that, you know, coming again from the traditional financial services industry where you wouldn't launch anything unless you fully tested it and it was, you know, absolutely what you wanted it to be. And here we were saying, well, you know, we've now built this differently. We can update it through, we did sprints every two weeks, if you like to, develop the technology we've got people telling us that they think this is good enough to launch let's get it out there and that was a really big learning experience actually so it i think the thing i learned more was how brilliant it was to have something that was so flexible and in touch if you like that we could then develop live through customer feedback i think that's what made it really effective and then we became really surprised because the thing that snoop did and does that I'm going to say unique, and forgive me if it's not completely unique, but it's, you know, different, is that it uses um, what's called open banking in the UK, whereby um, customers are able to go to their banks and say, I, I want to allow this regulated company, in this case Snoop, to see my banking transactions. And so we were thinking, why on earth would people sign up to that? You know, would you, and you might because you're a different generation to me, you know, would you allow people to have um, sight of your personal financial data without any question? And it turns out that people are very happy to do that if it means they can save money. So 75% of people signed up to connect their bank accounts to Snoop so that we could aggregate that data and then analyse their overall financial position. Uh, and that was a real real surprise for us. So it meant that we, as a consequence, have got on Snoop and still have on Snoop, the, new, the people that have bought it have all of the access to this, really rich personal data as to you know where, where you spend your money, where everybody spends their money. And that had become something that was really attractive to a whole bunch of uh, organisations. And so, you know, even in 2020, when we just launched, we had approaches to acquire the business. And that felt far too early. And then, you know, going through the process, we had some big companies, not in the world of banking, that came to us to say, you know, we'd be interested in inquiring Snoop to be a loyalty scheme, for example, if that was a big retailer. And so we knew that we got something that was attractive to uh, larger organisations. And what we felt, and I think has proved to be the case, is that being acquired by a bank would be the perfect match, really, because... As I said, you know, when if you can say to people, we know that by the end of the week you've got a little bit of excess money, then actually being able to offer a product that means you could save that money and earn some interest on it, great. Mm -hmm. Or if you know that you haven't got enough money, being able to have a little line of credit at a sensible rate obviously also means that people get a better deal. So, yeah, the sale to a bank made a lot of sense. When did the timing feel right? How did you know that, okay, now is the right time, it feels right? I mean, to be honest, so part of that was to do with the funding requirements. So we knew that by the end of this year, we'd need to have need to fund the business again. And so what do we do now? Do we sell the business or fund it through uh, shareholders again? And fintech valuations had gone down. And when we compared the two options, because we'd got actually more than one sale option, there was by the turn of this year, we had two um, other interested parties so we'd got some options and then as a board we just sat down to say okay what's the right thing to do you know should we at this point are we going to fund it ourselves and see it grow is this the right point to sell and we felt that it was the right point to sell because we had this banking opportunity did it feel I know this has happened in the last month like when the sale yes. officially <laughs> goes through does it feel 
incredible for you? Does it feel bittersweet? What, oh, definitely bittersweet. What are you feeling? <laughs> but I felt the same with Virgin Money. So I think the personal issue for us all, I don't doubt this is, well, I don't know. I, I, I'm definitely not alone, but I'm maybe not unique in this. I think that we all identify ourselves a bit, don't we, with what we do. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so for many years, having worked for Virgin, I was the CEO of Virgin Money. And when we sold the Virgin business, I was thinking, gosh, who am I now then? What, what am I if I'm not that? And there's a little bit of that with Snoop, although less because obviously this was four years, not 25 years that I was with Virgin. I think this time around, I feel, you know, it's been a great thing to do. We built a business of, you know, uh, 1.5 million customers um, we've got 52 staff I think and you know everybody's really excited about developing this new thing and and doing some good with with the business that we've built and that's the sweet thing the bitter thing is so who am I now then <laughs> what do I do next <laughs> if you see what I mean and and I think that that's quite good for someone like me because I think that we should all be not identified exclusively by what we do I think who we are is much more important than what we do if you can take who you are to what you do then that's a brilliant thing this time around I think I will rush less quickly into the next thing I'm not sure if I'm allowed to ask this but I'm very curious how does one become a dame you were my very first dame <laughs> I've met as, as I well, mentioned so the way in which the honor system works in the UK is that broadly people who have had successful careers in you know whatever form whether that's sports people or musicians or military or business for example you know you have to have done your own thing well before you're considered I guess um, but also people then look at well what have you done as well as that you know have you contributed to the country or society beyond your normal day job I think that's a really important thing and that's what so many brilliant people in the country do I mean, from my point of view, the, the piece of work that I did that sort of led to, to this, I guess, uh, which I'm, you know, extremely grateful for and honoured by, is a piece of work around um, gender equality. And so back in 2015, the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, asked me to do a piece of work, which was to understand why so few women become senior in financial services in the UK. And I hadn't really got involved in a sort of women's thing at work. I just sort of got on with work. <laughs> and I didn't really want to be pushed into it. And um, people had started to say to me, you know, you're old enough now to give back some of this thing. You should be helping other people and other women. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, it all just feels a bit awkward, if I'm really honest. Anyway, he asked me to do this piece of work. And what I hadn't realised was that, you know, if you look at the numbers... It's absolutely, it was absolutely clear that it was, um, to be precise, only 34% of people, of employees, over middle management positions in financial services in 2015 were women. And so you think, well, how can that possibly be in my own industry? I mean, and of course, as you then go higher and higher through the organisation, it's much, much lower. And so how could that possibly be in my own industry that it's so obvious statistically, you know, forget about just doing your job. Statistically, this doesn't make sense. And so he'd asked me to do a review as to why that might be. And, um, you know, I learned so much from doing the, the review that the, the answer really around why women don't or then didn't and probably still don't enough progress in financial services is all down to culture. 
And the specific thing, we did a big survey of women that work in the UK, financial services, banks, um, investment companies, insurance companies, asset management companies. And everybody said, or at least, you know, the very consistent feedback was in financial services, a lot of your remuneration, your compensation comes through bonus. So you get a relatively normal base salary and then you can earn much more money with your bonus. And what women said was um, the thing that's really unfair in financial services culturally is when it comes to bonus time, men tend to go and see their boss, bang the table and say, I've had a really good year and I deserve a really good bonus. And women tend to say, "Mm, I know I've had a great year. I hope I'm recognised. And I thought, gosh, I I recognise that too. You know what I mean? As a consequence, of course, weaker managers tend to respond to the people that bang the table. And so women think, well, I work my socks off. I work, you know, as well and as hard as my male colleague, but he goes and bangs the table and gets twice the bonuses I do. I may as well go somewhere else. And it was a real eye-opener in terms of culture, you know, around what we have to do in financial services to really change things. But, you know, I, I think... The review that I did, it was called the Women in Finance uh, Charter. Most of the the financial services companies in the UK signed up to it and, you know, were aiming, have constantly aimed to improve their representation of women, the culture, the pay, etc. in the UK. So I'm really pleased about that. But there's still such a long way to go. I mean, a friend of ours just joined one of the big investment banks, a woman, and didn't stay very long because she said it was such a macho culture. You know, I don't want to work in a culture that treats me in, in this sort of way. There's misogyny that I can see and feel. So we've got so much more to do about it. So I know that's um, a long ramble from your original question, but I think getting... So the honours come from getting involved with things that aren't your normal course, and gosh, they're interesting. <laughs> yeah, definitely. In the legal industry, I found that by the time I left... I was one of only two women in the corporate M&A group. And it's just a, it's a very similar thing. It felt very much like a culture issue where the men were rewarded for being more boastful. And then, I don't know, I, I wasn't the type to bang on the table. Exactly. It's, it's hard, I think. And even and uh, me too. And you'd imagine I might be, but I've always found talking about money a, a difficult thing. I mean, I remember after I'd left Virgin Money... I was in the Snoop offices in Waterloo, actually, and a woman came to see me and she'd been a remuneration advisor to Virgin Money. And she said, I've come to apologise. And I said, well, what are you apologising for? And she said, because you were not paid as you, as you should have been and you would have been paid more if you were a man. And I knew that all the way through, but because I was employed by the company, I couldn't tell you that. And it just, I mean, I've never forgotten it. It literally took my breath away. And um, it happens all the time. Most of my followers will know that I've been expanding my team this year, but finding the right balance of experience and the specialized skills that I need has been tough. That's why I love Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And they do the hard work for you. So instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's powerful platform can help you streamline hiring with tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. 
Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Erica. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash Erica. Just go to indeed.com slash Erica. Erica is always with a K and the link will also be in the show notes. Indeed.com slash Erica. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know me, video is an integral part of my business and the free content I post online, like my popular five-day savings challenge, are all video-based and have allowed me to help millions of people get better with their money. So I wanna share with you a tool that I really trust when it comes to hosting my videos online. It's called Wistia, a complete video marketing platform that has intuitive video hosting and creation tools, in-depth analytics, and experts on hand for support and inspiration. Simply upload your videos and take full advantage of a ton of features that take the stress out of video. They've got everything you could need and more. Recording, editing, closed captions so that your videos are more accessible and easier to watch on social media, a brandable video player, and email forms for lead gen. To learn more and try it out, go to wistia.com slash Erica, W-I-S-T-I-A, wistia.com slash Erica and follow their socials at Wistia. I'll also put a link in the show notes for you. Do you think you realized that before she said anything? Yes, because I'd got to a place where I was earning more money than I'd ever imagined. You know, I've described the background that I came from. It always felt churlish to argue too much about money, but I think, I, yeah, I think I was taken advantage of as a result of that. And I'm sure lots of women in particular are. It's always a struggle. You feel like, I know exactly how you're feeling because you feel like, oh, you have to be grateful for what you yes, have. Yes, this exactly. is so much money. Anyone would be so, so amazed Absolutely. that you've made it this far. But yet when you compare yourself to what a male counterpart could have been paid for the exact same exactly. role. And that's not right. So how do we solve it? <laughs> we have to fight for women there to make sure. that. Well, yeah, as I say, I think things like, I'll tell you a story that... Um, I think it's really interesting. I think, so I'm a Manchester United fan. And much to my surprise, every year Manchester United have a, um, a sort of conference for business people. And this particular occasion, I was invited to the Man United conference. And there were a lot of well-known business people staying in a hotel the night before. And the team, the club, were um, putting people on a bus to go to the ground, Old Trafford, the next day. And for some reason, everybody was on the bus. I'm normally early, and I was definitely the last person on the bus. And as I got on the bus, I went and sat next to this really high-profile businessman in the UK. I tell this story quite often, so he must have heard it. So, But I don't tell his name. And I could see as soon as I sat down next to him that he was thinking, oh, no, I really don't want to sit next to her. And so before I'd even said good morning, he said, I just want to say to you, I'm not signing your Women in Finance Charter. Oh, my goodness. And I looked at him and I said, well, why not? And he said, because, frankly, there's just not enough good women. Now, I know, your face drops. I was absolutely horrified, right? And so we had quite a terse conversation about it. Then we got to Old Trafford, and the whole day, it was really interesting. I'd been asked to speak there, um, and I'd been asked to speak about gender equality because I'd done this piece of work. But it turned out that the whole conference was about gender equality, right? Right. 
And it's fascinating to me. I mean, goodness me, when we think about what's happening in Spanish football now, it's brilliant that, you know, Man United and other teams in the UK, I'm sure, were quite ahead of the game. They've always been focused on diversity and gender diversity. And they had all of the speakers spoke about it. Not it wasn't my it was the theme of mine, but it was peripheral to others, but nevertheless it was always there. There was an American three-star general that spoke at it. There was a leader of one of the big distribution companies. As I say, there was myself. And at the very end, there was Sir Alec Ferguson, who used to very famously and successfully run Man United. And he also talked about gender equality and the importance of it. We went back on the coach and this guy said to me, I'm going to sign up to your charter. The learning for me from that was that it's not just a battle for women. It's the, the real unlocker is getting powerful men to be supportive of this agenda, if you see what I mean. And if you can do it together with powerful men, then we'll make much more change than we will do on our own. So that's what we have to do. You know, generationally, I definitely feel that we're at the cusp where, you know, my, my hope and experience, I think, is that men that are, um, you know, in a different generation to me, a younger generation to me, are much more likely to be completely yeah, balanced in terms of who gets what job. Um, but it certainly hasn't happened in my generation. Did he end up signing? He did. And it was another big insurance company, <laughs> but not Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like the concept of work-life balance? Well, I think that work-life balance is a really important thing to get, if you see what I mean. So I've definitely not got it right over the years. So as I say, my career was a complete accident. So it sounds a bit strange to say I put my career first, it wasn't so much that I put my career first. It was exciting. I, I loved it. I liked the people. I liked what we were achieving. I liked working for Virgin. You know, I just liked being at work. And as a consequence, it sort of dominated my life. And when I look back on it now, and particularly in my Virgin experience, you know, I worked there for, as I say, over 25 years. And you think, well, what was that for, really? And so I put off having children. And we started, you know, I married very young my husband and I were married for 19 years before our daughter arrived and she arrived through IVF um, having had six cycles of IVF and then having I then did another six cycles of IVF so she's probably the the miracle child um, in that sense and I think when you talk for women when you talk about work-life balance what I say to my daughter who of course at 21 still rolls her eyeballs at me is you know I regret putting off having a bigger family for for my career because we saw it was fun while it lasted and you know I loved it and I met lots of interesting people and I felt great but actually as I get older I wish I'd had more children and more of a family life if you if you see what I mean so to, to that extent if your question is you know what do you think about work-life balance I think finding a way to be fulfilled with a family if that's what you want and not everybody wants that and fulfilled with work I think is something that's really important by the way for men and for women <laughs> And that can be quite difficult, as we know. I'm struggling myself right now because I, so my husband and I, we are going to go through IVF. But I feel like I love what I do so much right now that I don't want, I don't know if I want to interrupt that rhythm. And I feel like now I get so much fulfillment from helping so many people. And who knows, like if I have a baby, if my maternal instincts just kick in and I just want to drop everything and I'm like, no podcast, no TikTok, no, no anything. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, I've never talked about this publicly, so it's kind of tough to talk about. No, it's tough enough. I definitely don't have the answers. But 
I think what I would say, and I've never said this before either, so and I didn't know I thought it till you just made that comment. I think I would say if you have a child, you can definitely fit your life, your working life around a child. I'll come on to that in a minute, I think. But if you don't have a child, you might never have a child. And I think that that's part of life that, you know, for some people, that would be a real miss. You know, the most important thing in my life, undoubtedly, is my daughter. And, you know, I look at some people that have got much bigger families. I just have one daughter and think, oh, you know, if, if I look back on my life, what do I, I, the thing I regret most is not starting earlier and having at least another child. And I remember I'm an only child and my daughter's obviously an only child and uh, her boyfriend <laughs> did say over dinner recently, of course, it's very difficult being an only child. And I thought, oh, I wonder what she's been saying to her. But it's true, you know, because all of those expectations and requirements and the level falls on one person then, which can be quite difficult, I guess. So, I mean, what, what happened to me was that waited till I was 35 to start to try for a child. It didn't happen. And we started IVF and, as I say, had six cycles, just apropos of nothing in some ways. I remember having given up after the fifth one and saying it's never just never going to work. And, you know, it's quite a draining thing physically and emotionally to do. Um, and then I was on a, another train journey, funny enough, and bumped into the woman who I saw for my IVF treatment in Norwich. And she said to me, how's it going? When are you going to come back? And I said, oh, I'm not going to come back. I've given up. And she went, no, 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 you can't give up. You know, one more try. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the next thing I knew, she'd written to me and booked me in. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you need that as well, I think. Sometimes just making the decision's hard. But if somebody makes the decision for you, don't, no, it was like, I'm sorry to trivialise, it's not trivial. But I like going out to a restaurant where somebody else <laughs> decides what we're going to have to eat, for example. And so I went through the treatment again and uh, and it was successful. And um, I remember thinking, gosh, now how do I deal with having a child and my job? It was a big job at the time and, you know, as you say, one that I absolutely loved. I thought, right, well, nothing's going to change in my life at all and I shall just simply take my child with me sort of thing. So anyway, then Amy's born and everything immediately changes. And, you know, my husband had given up work because I was the main breadwinner, so he was going to stay at home. Indeed, that is what happened in the end. But, you know, the, it hadn't seemed painful at the time that he was the one staying at home and I'd carry on going out to work. As soon as the baby arrived, you go, no, 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 I want to be with my baby. <laughs> and so that caused some trouble too, or some angst too. I mean, I, I found it, I don't know whether it was because of that or it would have happened anyway, but I certainly had proper postnatal depression after I'd had the baby, after I'd had Amy. And so sort of dealing with the job and depression and wanting to be at home and being at work, I remember going back to work and we got, we had a sort of management conference or something in a big hotel. And I was talking about, you know, having come back to work, I'd only had a few weeks off, ridiculously. If you do, do it properly. If you have a baby, do it properly with my suggestion there. And um, I remember standing up in front of this sort of crowd of people and saying, well, you know, I'm here, but I've had a baby and I have to be here because my husband's given up work and I still love what I do, but it's got to mean something. If I'm going to give up my time with my baby to work, I don't want to just be making money for somebody else. I want to do something that's meaningful. And by the time I'd finished and I was, you know, I remember looking up and seeing lots of people in tears 
and realizing actually it's not just me that feels like that that you know people want some meaningful work and you know so if you're enjoying what you do and it's making a difference as it does to people's lives then I think you can get that balance better if you see what I mean because you understand that what you're doing has a purpose over and above you know earning some money or fulfilling yourself so after that we tried very hard I tried very hard to uh, juggle sort of work and child and I think uh, the thing that was lucky very very lucky for me as I say my husband had given up work but we then um, moved from Norwich up to Edinburgh because I'd um, Royal Bank of Scotland as I said earlier acquired the Virgin business and so we moved up to Edinburgh um, to be at the heart of the Royal Bank and my parents because I'm an only child my parents on their 80th birthday or my mum's 80th birthday moved up to Edinburgh that was brilliant really because although I missed the time with Amy she didn't miss being brought up by a family if you see what I mean Uh, and so and I think that's been very good for you know my mum would do things with her that I would never have done like you know cooking (laughs) (laughs) which is not my thing Um, and so it it worked out well but I, I do think that it's hard if you haven't got that sort. I could definitely not have done it without my husband and my parents. Do you think that had you had Amy earlier, you would have gotten as far in your career? That's a very difficult and interesting question. I suppose perhaps I'd answer it a different way, which is to say, if I'd have had a Amy earlier, I might not have wanted to have gone so far in my career, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I don't know that doors would have been shut, but my desire might have been balance better Uh, and I do think that you know we should celebrate families women in particular probably but women and men who want to get to a certain point in their career and have a family and make all of that work Um, because I think that's quite important because when you you know you when you get I'm now 62 next birthday and you look back on it and think well actually the, the I've really enjoyed everything that I've done I've met some fantastic people I've done some fantastic things but none of it counts compared to having a family. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think sometimes it's good to try and look backwards rather than just forwards. How will you feel when you're older? When people come to you, I'm sure a lot of people look up to you and come to you and ask you for career advice. What is the career advice you give? Again, you say people ask for advice. Of course, I don't have all the answers. I can only tell you the things, <laughs> the things I've done wrong and learned from, I suppose. So my daughter is currently at uni studying archaeology and anthropology and is really keen to do um, be a museum curator. And, you know, she's starting to think about, is that right? And, you know, where will that take me? And, I th- and it's definitely something that she'd be good at and she would love. And so I say to her, do what you're good at and what you love. And she goes, yeah, but, you know, what, what happens if I can't do that because it's a limited career and, you know, lots of people want to do it? And so what I always say... And of course, it comes back to my own sort of accidental career is if you get an additional qualification after you're out of uni, such as training to be an accountant, you are a lawyer, nobody can ever take that away from you. And, you know, she's certainly not decided that she's going to do that. But I do know that, you know, she's been asking me more and more about it. So who knows whether she's thinking about it. So I just think that some of these opportunities to sort of give yourself a real grounding in a particular subject are good. I mean, I am definitely not your typical chartered accountant. I didn't enjoy studying it. It's It has really helped me throughout my career. But, you know, I've got a friend who I'm still in touch with. We qualified together, went through, you know, all of the 
tuition together 35 years ago or something. And she wasn't career ambitious, has never been career ambitious, you know, always put her two children first. But what she's been able to do because she qualifies as an accountant was to is to sort of dip in and out of work and do some work at home and, you know, use her accountancy to fill in the time and other sort of you know, whether it's financial or whatever. And she can do that because she's got a professional qualification. So I think that that's quite important. However, um, if I was to be less structured and sort of sensible about it, I would say that being thinking about being launching your own business is definitely the right way to go. Um, you know, if you've got a good business idea in general and you've got an idea that you love and you really think that you can go for it, I think there is no feeling in the world, and you know, I've just sold Snoop, like setting up your own business and seeing it grow and flourish. So I think the thing that, you know, again, completely accidentally I've done is I've been able to have that sort of stable platform of being an accountant, um, but I've been given the opportunity twice now to be entrepreneurial and and set something up myself. And I think probably if I was to go back to being the 20-ish year old me and I knew everything that I knew now, I would say, okay, I will go through the accountancy training, but actually that's to set up my own business. I relate to that on both levels because I remember when I quit my job as a corporate lawyer to start my own company, the one thing I told myself is, okay, the best case scenario is that I'm successful with my own company. I never have to go back and work for someone else. The worst case scenario is that I'm a lawyer, I have a law degree, and I can just go back to a law firm and get a job again. And obviously that itself, that statement is very privileged to be able to say, but I always just felt like I, I could have that degree to go back on if the worst case happened. And for me, the worst case was like running out of money and, exactly. and needing a job. Exactly. But a lot of successful people tell me this too, is it's all about risk tolerance and Entrepreneurs have high risk tolerance. They're starting their own thing. They're putting all their cards on the table for that. And having something that you can fall back on allows you to take a little more risk. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think if Richard Branson was sat here now, he would be saying I'm wrong. And the reason <laughs> that I say that is that in the UK, we've just had you know important exams announced, so A-levels and GCSEs. And... I saw Richard Branson on Twitter saying, as he does every year, I think, if you haven't got your exams, don't worry, because I never got my exams and you, you two can be like me sort of thing. I don't think he quits it quite like that, but that's the implication. And for some people that's true, but I just think that's not the norm. I do think that, you know, you, you talk about privilege and, and it, it's absolutely right that not everybody has the same opportunity. But I do think for those people that do have opportunities, don't waste them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if you have got the opportunity to sit a few exams and to do them well, do them well. Because you're never, you know, they may not be. I remember, you know, our education secretary this year said something like, don't worry about it, you know, if you've got bad results, because in 10 years' time, everybody else has forgotten about it. That's sort of true, but it, I do think that I remember... When I was doing my accountancy exams, because it wasn't natural to me, as I say, I was a historian, I really found them hard. And I remember saying to some senior guy in the accountancy firm, oh, God, what do we have to do that for? And he said, well, it, it, to be honest, it just shows you've got the discipline to do it. And, and I do think, I'm sorry if it sounds a bit old fogeyish, that that discipline is quite important. And as you say, once you've got that, you, it's a foundation. And then you can say, right, well, now I'm going to go and try my hand at whatever, and actually, you know, if I 
fail, then I've got something to fall back on. Because, you know, it's... For, for the likes of Richard Branson, of course, he had privilege in a different way, which is that I, th I think he came from quite a wealthy family. And so, you know, if you can fall back on that, if your family's got money, you can take risks too. But I think if you're a, a normal person, I think, you know, just try and build a bit of a framework around your life and then go get it. Yeah. Now, I remember my dad never went to college, so he would always just say, like, college is the way to, yeah. you know, find this great career. And so for me... I didn't know how to get into college. I mean, they certainly didn't didn't help me in that direction, but it was always instilled that, okay, Erica, you're going to go to college or you're going to go to join the military, which is also a stable career. That's what he did all his life. But I think there's a lot of truth in that as well. Yeah. The, other, the other thing I'd say, and I know that this can be really difficult and from time to time it's backfired on me for sure, is I do think always be yourself is really, really important. You know, we were talking about where we've come from and, you know, who we are. I think that whatever job you do, pretending to be something you're not, that you can only ever fail. I think that it's, a, it's an outmoded word now, but being authentic is really important. You know, if you feel something's right, do it. And if you feel it's wrong, don't do it. And I think that, you know, unfortunately in business, I think that quite a lot of um, business success can come from some practices that I don't feel comfortable with. And I think, you know, integrity, stay true to yourself. I think that's really, really important as you go forwards as well. Do you feel any pressure to have to outdo yourself with every next thing that you do? Yeah, a bit. One of the things that I've realized is much more valuable than I realized is anonymity. And, um, you know, as I was growing through my career, because I'm quite extrovert in some ways and well and I have an ego and I, I was going to say unfortunately I have an ego I think probably you can't you know have to have an ego if you're going to be a CEO of anything probably or some sort of ego I also enjoyed sort of exposure in the press or, or whatever and actually these days I'm thinking do you know what the, the quieter things are <laughs> actually sometimes the better and so I think it's that sort of pressure you know what will if, if I do this and it goes wrong what will the press say about it or how will that be seen by my peers, I think is always a little bit of a, a stress, um, but less so now that I'm not involved in something quite as big as Virgin Money probably. I have really enjoyed this. So we have a tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Dame Jane Ann Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, Dame Jane Ann Taught Me This? I would say never take no for an answer. Always ask the silly question and work out what you want to get out of life and go for it. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Erica. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.